Um, yeah, so this is a, a coronavirus special for Dilemma. I don't know. So just first off, are you okay? How are you doing? I feel like nobody's asking that enough to each other. You know, I'm fine. I am, I'm taking mm. precautions, but I'm not super anxious. The thing is, I was worried about this before it was cool. Yeah, because um, I'm a hipster. Were, I, I think in one of the one of the episodes, you you made a joke, and I sort of just like played it off. Um, but yeah, you were like, the, it was a joke about like, what if uh, you know, what if this is the one that takes us down? You were ahead. Of, you, uh, I guess you were keeping an eye on it. Where did you first learn about it? You saw like videos coming around the internet or something like in January. People yeah, were starting to I think whisper I, about. Yeah, this. yeah. I, I heard. I saw. I heard the the New York Times Daily podcast about the Wuhan. Oh. Well, you know, the Wuhan situation and I was on the subway looking at rats scuttle around on the subway while listening to a podcast about a, a virus, you know, derived from bats in Wuhan. And yeah, this overwhelming creepiness came over me. Yeah. And um, the, the moment it seemed like it, it could come here, I, I kind of yeah. shut everything down. But so I'm emotionally over that part. I think I got through that phase yeah. quicker. Yeah. So what I, uh, maybe, I don't know where we start with this, but I don't know if you've written things down. I have a few things written down, but I guess as co-hosts of a podcast, that's all about moral philosophy and sometimes seemingly outrageous hypotheticals of moral dilemmas and situations that, you know, we, we think we'll never be in and just sort of seeing how our philosophy bounces off of those things. It seems to me that we're all now living in a giant trolley problem and everybody has a different dilemma that is very salient to them now. Um, I've noticed a lot. I wanted to start the conversation. I'm curious, the ones in uh, particularly that you've sort of seen pop up in your social circle or in conversations, everybody's having these conversations, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know if we can help at all. I don't want to panic anybody. It's actually one of the dilemmas that I, that I, I have about um, too much information and mm. when it's good to, you know, where that line is. I think we're probably all struggling with that. But the first place that I wanted to start with is what is becoming so, uh, this isn't like a new particular problem with something like coronavirus, but this overarching problem that we're always in about people who worry about things like existential risk or future events is the problem of not being able to live in a counterfactual universe. Meaning that um, if you are super concerned about something that you think might happen and you happen to be right about something in the future and you start insisting that everybody take what's what seem to be drastic, non-reactionary, but like overly precautious um, care about something with with huge implications economically or, or inconveniencing people. And then you actually successfully avoid the disaster that you saw coming. You will always appear to everyone to have been a paranoid overreactor who wasted everybody's time and money. Mm -hmm. Like if you could get in a time machine right now and suddenly found yourself by some weird Twilight Zone thing like on the Titanic, the moment that it was about to leave port and you knew what was going to happen and sort of freaking out and trying to like break the engine. Of course, everybody would be restraining you mm -hmm. being like, this guy's insane. But let's say then you successfully did it and you broke the ship and everyone had to get off and they were all pissed at you and then put you like in a, a mental institution in your own mind. You're a hero who saved all these lives. But to all everybody else, you will always have been a paranoid crazy person mm -hmm. and th and and so that's like a, a a funny way just to obviously point to the psychological 
uh, maybe flaw that we have of being very, we react very well and we don't avoid disasters very well at all, especially if it calls for things like shutting down half of, you know, the economy or whatever, um, which are, which are real dilemmas to consider. Yeah. That what you're talking about, I think of as the paradox of the worry wart, right? <laughs> it's that if you, uh, that my favorite example of this which sends chills down my spine is in David Frum's book, Trumpocracy. Mm. He opens the book talking about uh, imagining a, a politician in the 1990s who was just going on and on about, you know, fortifying airline cockpits from potential yeah. hijackers and would be seen as just a total worrywart and alarmist. But imagine that despite all of the pressures, you know, pushing the other direction, like, you know, is this, is this cost efficient? Is this, you know, is this worth our time, our political capital? Imagine that they were successful and they got yeah. some precautionary measures through. We, we, we don't even know what we would have been saved from. Not only 9-11, yeah. but the aftermath. Um, and yeah, that, that's who, who knows how many heroes are walking around amongst us yeah. that we just view yeah. as complete bores we don't yeah. even know the the number of things we've been saved from that we don't even know is incredible and it's impossible yeah. to feel the way we should feel about that yeah it, it, I, I was i was having this conversation uh with zara about like do do you want if if there was a near terrorist attack that was going to blow up the subway last week and they averted it at the last minute. Like, do do you actually want to know that versus do you have a a right to know? This is, I think, Cass Sunstein's new book coming out later this year called Too Much Information is specifically oh. about that. Uh, you know, I'm, let me just read the the blurb that I got, um, I think, from the, the book. The blurb for Cass Sunstein's new book, which I guess is scheduled to come out September 1st. It's called Too Much Information. Mm. Um, is How much information is too much? Do we need to know how many calories are in a giant vat of popcorn that we bought on our way to the movie theater? Do we want to know if we are genetically predisposed to a certain disease? Can we do anything useful with next week's weather forecast for Paris if we are not even in Paris? In too much information, Cass Sunstein examines the effects of information on our lives. Policymakers, so this is the, the salient part here. Policymakers emphasize the right to know, but Sunstein takes a different perspective, arguing that the focus should be on human well-being and what information contributes to it. Government should require companies, employers, hospitals, and others to disclose information, not because of a general right to know, but when the information in question would significantly improve people's lives. This is actually, to, to your credit, kind of a perfect summation, it sounds like, of a consequentialist ethic mm. applied to the notion of information. Yeah. But I, I'll bring this to a coronavirus question, question to you specifically because um, I kind of buy that. Obviously, I haven't read the book yet, but I kind of buy that as a, as a guiding principle in some way. It does push against sort of this world we have of, of this right to know and, and maybe pushes against some sort of free speech absolutism. But what I worry about in it is something like, I don't know if you saw Graham Wood put an article out maybe four or five days ago now, just doing some basic math of publicly available data of people tracking the coronavirus and where the infections were and did, did this math that, that um, just extrapolated how many cases Iran must really have mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they were reporting something like, 
I don't know, 80,000 or something, but the actual number, unless the data of who was getting it from planes that came from Iran or whatever was just incredibly fluky of like everybody who had coronavirus in Iran happened to be on planes, which of course, as a good uh, statistician, Mm -hmm. you ignore flukes and assume that this is just somewhere near the the middle of a graph. The actual number of cases in Iran was probably closer to to 2 million, Mm. somewhere between 1 and 3 million, which was 250 times higher than what was being reported. Um, and you know, he's like, check my math, everybody, but this looks like the thing. And part of me, you know, I looked at the article and I was like, Oh crap, like, wow. And then also immediately thought of this argument of like, is this going to instill panic? Mm -hmm. Or of course the counter is like, is this going to get people to actually take it seriously? Mm -hmm. Which I don't know if that works. I don't know how you, how you respond to that, this level of like, do we actually really want to know? how what's out there i don't know yeah i guess the the question it comes down to is how much do we trust human rationality (laughs) because if humans are if we're trusting the human mind or the median human mind to react appropriately to information then the simplest thing is just give us the information and we'll naturally be able to sort what's relevant from what's not and i think that you know, on the other hand, there, there are people who think, you know, humans are perfectly irrational and, you know, we would need to curate all information so that we don't yeah. do something crazy. And I remember in Cass Sunstein's last book, it's hard to know what he writes so many so quickly, <laughs> so many. sometime in his last five books, <laughs> he, he made this point that there, there are times when policymakers should not be transparent about how they come to make their policies because they need to have conversations that are politically incorrect in order to come to the right answers. So like Mm, his whole thing mm. is cost benefit calculus when, you know, smart policy wonks at the CDC are coming up with a recommendation. They might have to reason in ways that are like fundamentally ugly you know, they might have to be yeah. calculating how many life years are gained from saving a 65 year old person for, you know, as opposed to a baby, just reason in ways that are kind of icky to the average person. And if, if we mandated that we have a transcript of their conversation for transparency's sake, it might sort of, I, I, that's what I understand Cass Sunstein's argument yeah. to have been. And I think, it, I think that's so persuasive up to a point. You know, you just have to find out what situations are like that and what aren't. The truth, of course, is that humans are ni- neither perfectly rational nor nor perfectly irrational. We have a strong tendency toward reason, but strong biases that make us very irrational and prone to panic. And it's just it's really hard to figure out yeah. where the line is, how to thread the needle between sowing panic and giving people useful information with which they can yeah. address this crisis. And, and even um, to, to maybe throw even more complication in, into that, and I, uh, you're at Columbia, you could give me sort of the report from what it looks like from the, the younger 20s crowd. But um, I don't know if I'm making this up or not. It's getting some play in the media now that younger people aren't taking it seriously or nearly as seriously. There's the obvious, well, they're not in like the high risk demographic but i i also wonder with this too much information kind of 
thesis and conversation. Is it also a bit of a, a, a trust problem in media and maybe government sources about crying wolf so many times? I, I remember just as a as a anecdote growing up, I was born in 82, and I remember growing up watching the TV. If you were flipping channels and you happened to come across a news channel where the breaking news graphic was on with the music, that was like a, a big fucking deal. <laughs> and you would stop, you would watch it. Even as a kid, you knew this was important. You would call your parents down to watch it and and you it was always a big deal i like i have a very vivid memory of seeing the breaking news graphic with the start of the the first gulf war mm. and this shot of uh, green night vision bombs flying everywhere and it was a big deal and now it's hard to walk by a screen for the last 10 years in an airport without seeing breaking news it could be like breaking news megan markle sneezed or something and it's like <laughs> is there also a bit of a sort of um they don't take it seriously because they've been told everything is the end of the world and now when it is actually a pretty serious situation. Mm. There's no wolf to cry anymore because mm. they already used used it. You know, I'm I'm not sure if the crying wolf is the main reason, although yeah, I think it, it could be true that like big picture we just react to news less. Like it, you know, it, it was World yeah. War Three, what, two months ago? And that <laughs> yeah, went out yeah. of the news in a week, but no yeah. one who was crying it was World War Three really registered that that we came down from that cliff emotionally they just kind of came Mm -hmm. down from it and weren't reflective enough to be like oh we freaked out but yeah as far as coronavirus and the idea that young people aren't taking it seriously that seems plainly true to me i mean i Mm -hmm. i walked on columbia's campus yesterday expecting it to be expecting people to be distancing themselves you know at least like three feet from the next person not even close. The weather was yeah. nice, not even that nice, like high 50s, which was enough reason for just like dozens and dozens, probably well over 100 people to gather on the lawns and the steps and just hang out in tight knit groups, yeah. you know, standing shoulder to shoulder, hugging each other, just like playing football. Yeah. Which is like, like the pa- pa- passing. Yeah. Back it's like past the coronavirus yeah. vector. <laughs> Yeah, everyone. And, and I, I was so, you know, I, I've been so immersed in reading, you know, and, you know, the Twitter feed and reading articles about it that I expected other people to be also taking it seriously. Uh, but they're yeah. just not. I mean, here's the, here's the other thing I realized is that I think people, you know, people like me and and probably you, you to some degree, you're maybe a bit more extroverted than I am. I actually don't know. The point is, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> people who like like being on Twitter and like getting information, Infovores, Policy Wonk, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of more comfortable with social distancing by nature. Yeah, because a lot of us do it already, you know. But if you're a typical person who like really gets energy from being around people and you know is not an infovor type social distancing is actually a very big emotional burden and yeah. there's virtually no payoff if you're young so just right. the simple theory of humans being selfish creatures predicts that young people you know for the most part would not care and that's exactly yeah. what i'm seeing yeah yeah me too and so i, I want to get into some of the more um difficult 
outlandish kind of situations that maybe we could have done. So Robin Hanson, someone who you really turned me on to has been, <laughs> I think, in, we also just got to say like this coronavirus pandemic thing is like kind of a statistician's dream and a social scientist's dream of like the kind of data that that is going to come out of what happens here is fascinating to study so there's this perverse kind of interest for people like robin hansen of like oh how do people react what can we learn here um he was also very early on in this thing and knew it was coming he did the math he suggested kind of facetiously but looking back on it now may have been a really interesting answer of we should be intentionally infecting our uh, first responder and healthcare workers you know, like a month ago. So inevitably when the curve started going up here, our, we would have people to, to, to work and, and it, we wouldn't be so overwhelmed. Mm. Uh, the, yeah, the obvious like ethics of that, I mean, intentionally versus how many would just volunteer. I don't, I don't know. raises a lot of questions, but mm. playing it back, this is the kind of counterfactual thing. He'd be the guy on the Titanic being like, you're insane. We're putting you in a, in a straight jacket. Um, <laughs> uh, and if it had worked, like then he still would have been considered insane just in his own mind. He could show you all the math and been like, look, I saved all these lives, but people don't respond to math and numbers. We just know that. We clearly mm -hmm. know that now, but they respond to lives. Um, that, talking about flattening the curve, it, it seems to be, just to throw this out there, I'm sure you've been reading all this stuff. It, you know, the fatality rate is this number that everybody keeps trying to put their finger on and no one can really quite do it. But it, it, we seem to be honing in on some decent data because we have these different countries kind of handling it differently. Like the data from South Korea is really, really good because they're testing like everybody. And then you could just sort of extrapolate the fatality rate they have there. But it seems to be the fatality rate hovers, again, don't get your information from me, go to the CDC or whatever, but three to 4% for countries that are like overwhelmed yeah. and then can drop all the way down to like 0.6 or 0.7 or something for countries that are, or situations that are like pretty well prepared and the curve is generally flat, which is also horrifying because that just tells you like, I'm just doing the math in my head, like 75% or something of the deaths of this thing are actually pretty preventable mm. if you had taken precaution, mm. which is horrifying. Mm. Um, so back to Robin's proposition, you tell me what you think about it. I love the way he thinks there. Uh, that's that would be a way to to maybe not demand such crazy shutdown, lockdown, closing things because um, you know you just, you your your healthcare system is is harder. It's just more resilient because mm. you have more people in it. And we should have been building hospitals maybe a month ago. I don't know. So if you think about his, his idea, it's not that different than then um just normal immunities like normal shots right yeah it is in a few important ways one would be probably you know if, if you're injecting healthcare workers with the virus some very small percentage of them might die from it Mm -hmm. and at the time robin was writing that i don't think we knew enough and still don't know enough about the virus to really, you know, do it safely, inject people with it safely. Although I hear, you know, there, there are some uh, labs offering, you know, 500 or $1,000 for people to voluntarily get injected with mm -hmm. it so that they can help speed up the process of, of, uh, mm -hmm. of a vaccine. But yeah, I mean, you have to imagine in his hypothetical that like, we have enough to vaccinate healthcare workers, but not the general population. Right. 
um, which I or guess it, is, and it wasn't even vaccinate. I think at the time he was suggesting just expose them exposed. to it, so they'll so they're they'll immune, get it yeah. and then get over right. it, and then build up sort of antibodies and immunities, assuming it doesn't mutate. Yeah, I mean that that's so the other assumption. Worse, that's another so. important assumption. We don't really know right. that it's not going to mutate, and we I don't think we know yeah. yet that you can't get it twice. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so his suggestion may have been impractical yeah definitely impractical but not great not like i don't think you should dismiss it out of hand no and Um, if the economy tanks badly i mean what's so interesting about this one also i think um someone we referenced a lot here and i'm going to again soon sam harris who i've worked with mm -hmm. keeps calling it a dress rehearsal and it's a good Mm -hmm. you know if this is a dress rehearsal for a much worse one i'm fascinated by if we will learn anything from this experience or have learned from our mistakes yet at all uh, maybe that's something we do next time. I have no idea. I don't know. I think I agree with him that that it's a dress rehearsal. I mean, it, it's serious and we should take it seriously, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you can just imagine like with small changes in the virus, how much worse it could be. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. if it were yeah. an order of magnitude more deadly, that's the obvious one. But even if it were just as deadly, but instead of targeting elder people, it targeted children, yeah, I think people, people would be, would be absolutely ballistic yeah. right now. And Which is kind of terrible of just the way that we yeah, it's horrible. consider old people Dispensable. in society as like all of the, the tweets and comments of like, ah, they're in their 80s. Yeah. It's like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> like, what the fuck? The, These are people? He- Heather McDonald wrote, wrote a column yesterday just saying, yeah, you know, most of the people are dying are above 70 and, you know, they didn't have long to live anyway. Mm. Like, like real, like tossing, just tossing <laughs> old people out in half a sentence. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I certainly hope when I'm that age, I'm not viewed as so dispensable. Um, yeah. and, but yeah. the, in, in well, fairness, there's an obvious point to make about like length of years left. That's not in, yeah. that's not in, not, that's not a, crazy consideration or a callous consideration but yeah every time someone says the virus is quote not that deadly you're smuggling in a a young person's perspective Mm -hmm. it's it's quite deadly from the perspective of an older person or even a young immunocompromised person yeah So, so this brings up i wanted to like shift to this conversation of I don't I don't know the philosophical term for this. There must be one or psychological one, but this notion of invisible responsibility. I mean, it comes up everywhere. This isn't like a, a, a novel concept here, but um, it, it, like there, all the famous quotes of like ethical. What's this one by um, ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when doing the wrong thing is legal. This whole like an ethical person is the one who gives charity mm. anonymously, mm. all that kind of stuff. We consider this to be kind of the highest moral good because it's um, removing kind of the, the the social points you get and the status points you get from doing it. It's doing it for the sake of doing it on itself. When no one's watching, you did the right thing. Um, there's like an inverse of that, of course, of you can do the wrong thing if it's invisible and nobody will notice and nobody will see. And you're much more likely to do that. Um, when it comes to a virus that nobody can see, you have this opportunity to like it, as we're finding out, it's very likely actually given the data that people who are totally asymptomatic and may never know they even have had it, had it Mm -hmm. and spread it to people who are very vulnerable. I may have had Mm -hmm. it. So 
I, I'm, I'm sharing some of that invisible responsibility. And if somebody who is connected to me dies or like, you know, I, I had dinner with friends actually at their apartment yesterday. It was just the four of us and we drove or, you know, didn't, we, we walked, but we walked with social distancing and all that. If like somebody that they know dies of it, I'm, I'm going to wonder mm. like, shit, did that come from me? Mm. And it's always impossible to know. Um, but uh, I wonder what I'm getting at is I wonder if one of the interesting things that's coming out of this is a kind of social shaming that actually can work mm. because people are, it's, we're not changing their behavior based on, as we're pointing out, like ethical, like to actually care about old people. What are you doing? But wouldn't you feel just incredible shame for causing death? Uh, even inadvertently. Yeah. But I don't know if you follow this patient 31 thing in, in South I was, Korea. I was about to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I'm, th- I'm sure we're all thinking of. Patient 31, for people who are listening who haven't heard it, it was it seemed like South Korea was kind of getting a handle on this thing. And then this explosion in this of, of cases like came out of this one area and they tracked it back to this one person, person, patient 31, who, if I'm getting the story right, was told she had it and then like went and sort of ignored doctor's orders to stay isolated and went to church and mm-hmm. then went to like a buffet and like thousands of cases were tracked back to her. Mm. You just do the numbers and that's like, you know, potentially a hundred people that dead because of her or more, whatever it spreads. Um, that's like border. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer here, a criminal lawyer. It's bordering on like involuntary manslaughter, mm. reckless endangerment. I really wonder also about the legality of this thing. We could just talk, we, let's set aside the legal questions because mm-hmm. I think Florida is actually also suing China, which is interesting. But, the state of Florida um, is suing China? Yeah, something like, I think Boca Raton actually specifically because they're all old people. And that's an interesting case that's of hilarious. like the early days of mismanaging it. You unleash this upon the, should China feel any moral responsibility or shame for the way that they failed mm. in this case? But let's just talk about someone like patient 31 and the usefulness of public shame shaming in this case to to make sure here in america we haven't really had a patient 31 there was this one guy who flew on the plane from new york who was a doctor or Mm -hmm. something and had it or maybe knew he had it or whatever he's also getting shamed i think there's something about the usefulness of shaming here that um, we don't talk a lot about the positive aspects of of shame and just admitting how much we care about our status Mm -hmm. um in society that that might actually be I don't know, useful here and pointed towards ethical ends. So shaming is definitely an important part of the story of how we're going to get people to social distance, you know, by making them feel bad for not doing it. At the same time, I do think there just is a limit sort of built in, baked into human nature uh, with many people when it comes to how selfish they are. It's, it's, yeah, I guess it's like a tragedy of the commons type problem where, you know, everyone, everyone pursuing their own, what makes sense for them personally, young people, it really doesn't make sense to social distance. Like say, you know, that, that girl I like is asking me to hang out on the lawn of Columbia. Am I really going to say, well, I actually no I'm going to stay home <laughs> rather than take this chance to, you know, it's just a, mi- a million yeah. decisions like that, you know. So, so there's a limit to that, and but the possibility that it'll ever be really traced back to right. you, you'll always have the trap door in your right. head. Like that patient 31 could be like, come on, they probably had it already. Or like, you can't prove it was so me. So with patient 31. Um, yeah. So my, my understanding of what happened with her is that she was not especially irresponsible. Mm. I mean, she, she was perhaps a little bit irresponsible, but what I what I understand happened is that her church congregation had some practices that 
were almost designed to spread viruses. And so her just participating in the normal practice of church led her to spread it to literally over a thousand people. And I see that as more of an example of moral luck, which I don't yeah. know if is, have we talked about that on the, on the show before? We, we've brought up the term. I don't think we've ever really like dissected it. I think it's, uh, before, um, yeah. I think it's Thomas Nagel's coinage. Mm. And I, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, the example he gives is just walking and you step on an ant or something and just like mm. take it as a given that that's an unethical thing to do. You're, you're stepping on an ant was a matter of luck because the act right. of walking is something we're all doing all the time. But it's just pure luck whether you end up harming someone. Or, or, or another instance would be you punch someone in the face and that person has a condition that if they get any significant amount of trauma to their head, they die instantly. Right. Lots of people punch people in the face, but few of them kill them on contact. So, you know, in that case, you're getting prosecuted for murder or something like that. But really, as a, as a moral agent, you are no worse than the guy who got into a bar fight. And yeah. so patient 31 in South Korea viewed purely in terms of the consequences she wrought on that country, killed many, many people. At the same time, I think a lot of other coronavirus patients have probably behaved in a similar way and 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 spread it to far fewer. Just got lucky, pure yeah, dumb yeah, luck. Just got lucky. Yeah. So I, in a way, yeah, I, I have sympathy. I have time, sympathy yeah. for her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me, me too. But but there is the like maybe there's a way instead of that's that's a really good edit because I actually didn't don't know her story that that detailed because maybe there's an edit to me focusing on shame and that we should all be shaming her of almost the like look how tragic this is and that it kind of is going to weigh on her conscious forever which might be unfair but it's just going to and don't you want to avoid that so maybe you ought to like if you're just feeling a little sniffles or something don't go to a buffet mm -hmm. like maybe there's a way to, to turn that without sort of um, shaming herself or, yeah. or even florida suing china china behaving the way they did it's not like they're the only country that did that did they get unlucky somehow that they just happened to be the one that it, it let out um yeah no it's it's uh it, it's it's a good point about about moral luck versus moral mm -hmm. shame of like you if, if you're feeling a little un unwell um you can be uh you can by by just a bad string of luck and some some unfortunate event be the one who caused putting it that way without saying like responsible morally the one who caused a lot of death mm -hmm. and sadness and you don't want that weighing on your mm -hmm. conscience so let's try to all be socially distant here and we can have sympathy for the people who yeah who get unlucky and behave in you know not such extremely bad ways i mean even the doctor who flew to florida i don't know all the details there was all, there's conflicting reports whether he knew it before whether he knew it after or i think i even heard like he got an email while on the plane mm, yeah that's saying what i that heard test was positive yeah. which is even like yeah if you're waiting for a test dude like you know maybe don't get on the plane but i'm sure he wasn't the only one who's done that so far and he's the unlucky one who who got that so there's some sympathy there but there's also some like hey don't be don't don't put yourself in a situation where where you could be unlucky. There's a sports analogies here of like, 
you know, athletes who I don't even know the quotes off the top of my head, but like they don't believe in luck. They're just like being in a position to be lucky is as actually the thing. So don't put yourself in in obvious positions where you might be very morally mm. unlucky, like a buffet at the moment. Yeah. And you're sort of pointing to that. That's that might be the best way to to edit that whole that whole thing. But I wanted to talk while we're on the topic of social media. Um I wanted to 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 bring this up. I'm going to bring an anecdote in from the film I made with Sam and Majid. I might even play it. So if I play it, I'm going to I'll put it here. What you and Majid hope that audiences will get from conversations like this. You all should really feel a part of the conversation. Everything you do on social media and comment threads and and the kinds of conversations you have with colleagues and friends and coworkers the things that you choose not to be silent about when they're said in, in front of you. I mean, all of that is indispensable in getting these kinds of ideas out there to those who are possible candidates to be persuaded by them. And so I, I would just encourage you to own your part of this and feel that, that this is really your, your project as well. It's not just me and, and Maj is sitting up here. On the plane. And it's at the end of the film. And so, you, you know, the film is based on the book between Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz having this very uh, intellectual conversation that's pretty heady about uh, Islam and the future of tolerance is the name of the film and the book and gets into uh, philosophy and, and politics about the relationship between Islam and, the, and violence, et cetera. Very complicated stuff. And as a filmmaker, it's an old trick in the hat that we always are sort of told and try to, to end the film on sort of a more positive note or at least a call to action. Like you've just sat through this deep conversation about a very tricky topic and maybe you hopefully you learned something and you, you feel a bit smarter. But now, you know, the number one question us filmmakers always get is what do you mm. do? And so I was looking for a clip of both of the men, Sam and, and Majid, maybe saying something a little more action oriented so you could leave the theater with something you do. And I used a clip of Sam. This is 2006, January uh, 2016, sorry, 2016 in January, where a clip when he was in Australia on stage with Majid answering a question from the audience. And uh, so I just played it so you know, but he emphasizes basically that you and the audience listening to this conversation should feel a part of it. And he includes in that sort of your interaction on social media. Yeah. Um, he's almost, he basically says, you know, like if, if you're on social media and somebody sees it, just a deluge of responses to really bad ideas on something in that case in particular about Islam and violence or something, um, it's, it's helpful. And he ends the quote. It's a very nice quote. He says other things about like, it matters the kinds of things that you stay silent about yeah. when said in front of you. And that's very nice. But on social media, the etiquette, I, I don't know if it's changing or he's changed his thoughts from 2016. I'm curious how you think. And in I have in mind a little interaction, which you may have seen with Candace Owens that he just mm. had, who was a very, you know, I find her just a really kind of awful character who's, uh, you know, feeding red meat to the to the right wing base and and has sort of this character she plays. Maybe it's genuine. I don't know. But spreads a lot of crap information. It's a very kind of vile character there. Um, and and tweeted this thing that was not necessarily calling coronavirus a hoax, but very much downplaying it and saying, like, this is an overblown media hype and that's going to be the legacy of this thing. Sam called her out in a way that he hasn't done, honestly, in a long time with people like calling people out directly and calling the, the tweet stupid and basically saying you should walk it back, something like that. And then had a phone call with her, apparently, and then put out a tweet saying, like, great to talk to you. 
um, be well kind of thing. And she amended a little bit of what she said in this tweet and said something like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even remember what she said, but she basically said like practice social distancing. It it was a good edit Mm -hmm. as far as like, if anybody was reading her first thing, uh, and she has a large follower base, if anybody was reading her first thing and said, Oh, this is a hoax, forget it. Maybe they changed their behavior a little bit. So the obvious consequentialist math of people with large followings saying the right things at the moment is, um, you know, obvious again to me, but, but I'm actually a little bit unsure at this point with, and we don't need to speak specifically about her that much unless you want to, uh, or people like her, but what, I'm not sure what is the best course of action Mm -hmm. in a crisis when you're dealing with people who oftentimes who have large followings and have an audience listening are peddling harmful information. Should you degrade them and, and just like, you know, get in little Twitter spats about them or should you do what Sam tried to do? I actually don't know. I'm curious your thoughts. You have a bigger following Mm -hmm. than me. I don't know if you like it. I'm starting to view my small one as sort of a blessing. It's like, I can say what I want. I don't (laughs) care. But if I, I, I I see Sam's dilemma there, Mm -hmm. if I had a big following, I would behave differently Mm -hmm. on there. You'd become a bit of a, like a news agency Mm -hmm. yourself, which is I think a shit situation Mm -hmm. that we're in. Yeah. Cause we shouldn't, I'm not a news agency. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two, there are two questions. I guess they're, they're in a way they're the same question. Like how should we, how should we look at our participation in in social media, given that Mm -hmm. social media can be exciting and extremely terrifying and really toxic. Um, and it can amplify all of like the petty kinds of anxiety that you want to escape if you're trying to live a happy life with your few years Mm -hmm. on earth. So the way I look at this basically is the same way I look at U.S. foreign policy, which is, you know, the reason I'm not a, you know, um, I suppose a pacifist or an isolationist with U.S. foreign policy, meaning the reason I don't think we should just take our troops away from everywhere and say the world is the world's problem, let's put America first and you know, we'll retaliate if someone attacks us, but other than that, we're just battening down the hatches and keeping our troops home. The reason I, I, I don't agree with that is because, you know, influences is, you know, wars are going to be fought whether we're in them or not. And if American troops aren't somewhere, you know, they might just be replaced by Russians. And so you mm-hmm. have to make the comparative the comparative yes you have to ask the comparative question which force is better not which force is amazing or perfect and the analogy to social media is just that if you don't occupy space with arguments hmm. someone else will the space is going to be occupied either way and it's either going to be occupied by arguments that make more ethical sense or arguments that make less ethical sense and so to to abandon the stage completely is just to sort of allow people who, you know, perhaps for reasons of confirmation bias or financial incentives or partisanship are going to spread lies. Yeah. So it's kind of not an option to, I think, uh, completely disengage. But mm-hmm. I, I do view it as like a reluctant engagement. Yeah. It's not, and do you, th- and, you know, 
I was going to say in a, in a time of crisis, do you think the engagement changes or, or ought to change? Um, because just it's more important right now if Fox News, as, as much as I find it terrible, actually, you know, amended their like it's two options. Do we try to get people to stop watching Fox News or because we're like, look, they're lying to you. Why are you watching this? Don't go to a restaurant. I think today Ted Cruz said it's a great time for like healthy people to go to restaurants because there's plenty of tables. And it's like that is so, so irresponsible for him to be saying, of course, and for Fox News to be broadcasting. So is should the response be like writing letters to Fox News being like, oh, no, 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 please actually tell people to social distance and like take this responsi- responsibility, you know, seriously? Uh, or is it to, to, to make fun of them and bash them and find Fox News watchers and get them to change the channel? It, it might just be a time thing, like in a, in a time of crisis, it's like, no, it's actually more important that even bad media starts to say nice, good things because it's life saving. There's like lives on mm-hmm. the line. Uh, and then and then I, I guess like the frustration with that, uh, if the answer to that is yes, which I which I think it might be, obviously, a lot of consequentialism would point that way is it's not totally clean consequentialism because then when the crisis, this is not our last crisis. And then are you somehow legitimizing this person with Sam somehow legitimizing? I don't even know what the word really means there, but Candace by engaging with her on a phone call or whatever, where, where the next crisis is just as bad. Is it, is it much more important? And this is maybe a philosophical, uh, a philosopher's kind of um, bias here, but we try to think of these things. And that's why we deal with these crazy hypotheticals and have these crazy conversations and have our podcast before the crisis starts so we could think of these Mm. things and the power of not calling out fox news in normal times when things are when the stakes are smaller uh which i know has been done but i don't and i don't know the answer to it um maybe is the thing that that led to the situation you know how i feel about certain other characters who in particular propped up candace or whatever in fact i think you when you were sort of a, a rising star asked me about going on dave rubin's show and it was almost the same kind of calculus of like, listen, he's got a big audience. Do what you mm-hmm. want. Here's what I think about him. And, and I thought you did a great job. And it's always you're not the only person who's asked me about that show or other people because I just happen to, to have opinions and know a lot of these mm-hmm. people. And I always give that same advice. I get, I'm like, they have an audience. So you could reach that mm-hmm. audience. And if you think if you think the, that audience that audience is getting bad information, you could use this as an opportunity to inject and sprinkle in a little good stuff. That's always available. But it's only convincing even of myself to a certain degree. Um, yeah. You wouldn't I, take I, it to Alex Jones, Jones, would you? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Cause at some point you're like, it's actually not worth it. Like where is the line where <laughs> that argument I just gave breaks and you say like, no, actually the best thing to do is like ruthlessly mock this person mm-hmm. and every person who watches it. Um, it's not really my style. I'm not like a good internet troll mm-hmm. that way. Although I do get frustrated. I think Sam used to much more take that tact and now has backed off in a certain way. I don't know the line, honestly, it, it, social media it irritates me like crazy, but this particular question mm-hmm. is, is one that always, and it, and it seems to, we know the incentives within the machine itself align towards, we know which answer they want, which is, Hey, fight everybody. Cause it's more mm-hmm. engagement. Um, so we're up against it just with the algorithms as is. Um, I don't know. I just threw a lot at you, but, but I can never find that line. Yeah. So the, the idea that, um, you legitimize people, is that a word? Legitimate, legitimize. Um, it's it's used a lot. I don't, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't really see it that way because so like Candace Owens, for example, I think 
many things she says are true about race, and mm. I would agree with. Right. And other things she says are like Wikipedia false. Like you could find out that they're false in two seconds. Like, you know, and, and I don't even know how serious she is, but she she's yeah. she has seriously said things like um Richard Spencer is a paid operative of the Democratic Party. Right. So like okay, maybe she has access to some information that's going to come out 30 years from now in the biography of Richard Spencer in the, in the archives and we'll be like, wow, that's crazy. The time the DNC propped up this white supremacist to, you know, but like, come on, that's very unlikely. Yeah. So things like that, there, there is a, a, with her, a willingness to say things that are factually untrue and a seeming not feeling of the burden. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, she she has a style of engagement that is really engaging for people and yeah. she's not she doesn't seem to me to be like completely crazy she seems more like kind of like modeling herself after ann coulter who's like from what i hear is a very sweet person in real life but has a style of engagement that is half entertainment and half or perhaps you know two thirds or three quarters entertainment and like one quarter serious argument. And the idea can be that, you know, you, you get a much wider audience by having the entertain by, by maxing out on the entertaining half. And then whatever arguments you sneak in there, you know, are, are probably having some greater effect. So if that's, if that's the style that, you know, she thinks makes sense for her, then you know, I, I, what I worry about that is you, you just become so loose with facts mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I don't see once you stop caring about what's true for entertainment purposes, you lose the right to complain against the people you claim to hate the SJWs yeah. who have all of these false ideas. Uh, you, you kind of lose the, 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 intellectual high ground when you when you just say yeah global warming is a chinese hoax uh, everything donald trump does is great in principle a priori i'm not even gonna you know think about the, the idea that yeah. something he, he does might be bad you just lo- you, you lose the right to complain in my opinion but but as for legitimating you know I, i'm not yeah. everyone is you know all public intellectuals and and people are some mix no one is perfect right right and so uh, how much better would candace owen have to be for you to say okay now she's worth talking to i don't know there's some line there but it's not clear where that is and you know she she seems sane enough that one could have a conversation with her right yeah. So I don't, I think that's uh, all, yeah, I think I it's know. all to the good that like Sam got talked her and got her to slightly walk back from the cliff of saying, you know, you know, we're just going to freak out and crash the economy. And that's the only thing people are going to remember. This tweet will yeah. age well, <laughs> you know, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I guess like the legitimizing thing, maybe this is not how it, how it's meant to be used there, but would be like. I don't know what small percentage of people who follow Sam had never heard of her and now they have because of that conversation and now they'll follow her and then some small percent will be enraptured by her, not just false ideas, but just like 
terrible engagement and and harmful ideas. I mean, but then there's really, vice versa. Really you know, how, how many how many Candace Owens yeah, fans discover true. Sam? I hope. Yeah, and you yeah, know maybe although they, yeah and then it's like we become I, I put up like behold being held hostage by somebody's high follower account mm-hmm. and i wasn't saying it even snarkily i'm like that's i actually feel the hostage holding there of the high fire follower count um as a, as a much much less like we could get off the candace thing says on, on a much less uh prickly example uh you know i went on morning joe the msnbc yeah. show which i think is a show that's like not great i don't you know i, I, I was this for was this for the documentary it was mm-hmm. for the documentary. It was for an interview for it. And um, it wasn't like very combative. It was fine. I was, I was super happy to be on it. But most of me being happy to be on it was also that they have a huge audience. And I was like, oh, cool. Like an opportunity to like maybe correct some of MSNBC viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, moral relativism, as it turns out, that I, of course, I'm convinced is is harmful to the people that they want to protect. I think the intentions are good and I want to help give them some better things to think about in arguments or whatever. Um, so, you know, like, did I legitimize that show mm-hmm. by going on it or whatever? Like, yeah, in, in some way, but yeah, it was that being held hostage by a large audience is a, is a problem that is, um, yeah, beyond social media, but in a way has snuck into like Candace Owens doesn't have any qualifications. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's just a blogger mm-hmm. who like caught some wave and there she is. Uh, but now she has this huge audience. I mean, and it's like, but listen, then, are, then you're, then it's power. So a few things about that. Yeah. One is. Yeah. You know, Fox News, MSNBC, these are all abstractions that contain, you know, dozens or hundreds of different people. Um, mm-hmm. And those people run the gamut. You know, Fox News yeah. has actual experts on. Not just occasionally, but like with some frequency, like the, the, the guy Sam Harris had on his podcast to talk about Corona said, I go on Fox mm-hmm. all the time to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So, you know. If if something is an important outlet, the question of whether it as a whole is legitimate or not, I, I don't think really can be answered because, you know, that question is going to be answered differently for like the worst moments of Hannity versus the the more quality shows on Fox and the same for MSNBC. Yeah. We have this problem of partisanship and I think the even bigger problem of echo chambers and information cocoons and bubbles and whatnot yeah. I think most people don't realize the degree to which they're in a bubble. So for example, I've been writing for Quillette and I've written for the Wall Street Journal and did one for the New York Times. And often people in the world, in the circle that pay attention to those kinds of things, if I'm talking to them, they often ask me, wow, things must be crazy for you at Columbia, right? People must be coming up to you all (laughs) the time and engaging your work and whatnot. And I say, no, nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares. Nobody's heard of yeah. Quillette. That's, it's a very niche thing to care about. So the mistake people are making is assuming, is failing to realize how much of a bubble they and others are in. And especially others. Yeah, um, especially others. People, yeah. Want, people would like to think that the wider world is paying attention to the things I'm doing. But the wider world is like in its own bubble, paying attention to to like the things it's paying attention to. Yeah. And so I think, you know, part of breaking that bubble is being willing to talk to people who are coming from a very different set of biases and perspectives than your own. Um, yeah. There's not enough of that, on in my that, opinion. So I, I think it's on net. It's a good thing. Yeah. And, and I wonder actually, like we could, we can move towards the end of this conversation 
with good things because I wonder it, everyone's we're, we're obviously very much in it. We're still on the upswing of a very steep curve when we're recording this. Um, so we'll see how it plays out, but everyone's wondering what this is going to change in the future. People are calling it, you know, a global event. Nothing will ever be the same. Uh, we'll see how that plays out, but there, there's something very, um, uh, uh, about a, a, a pandemic that cuts through a lot of bullshit and cuts through a lot of hoaxes and a lot of partisanship and a lot of posturing and virtue signaling, whatever we're going to call it on every side, something that everybody does. It just cuts through it because it's getting to like base survival mm. and something that is just, it doesn't care about borders, doesn't care about ethnicity. This thing just comes for you. It's a virus. It's like a blind thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump could call it a hoax all he wants. And it's he might like, get it. He's still, <laughs> but he might get it. And like, there's something just very, that cuts through all of these bubbles that mm. we have. Um, which demands, I, I think, a, you know, hopefully a shift. Um, our, our, our bubbles and maybe our, our I want to bring this to a conversation about what's going to change. And I wonder uh, if, a, if this populist nationalist kind of wave that we've been seeing is going to suffer a little bit. I think Steven Pinker wrote something about this actually um, under something like the situation of coronavirus, which, which just seems to demand global cooperation in order to combat it because it just doesn't care. The thing doesn't know when it crosses a border. And so the, the borders that we care about and protect are important clearly, but I, I wonder what do you, do you think this is going to change any of the bigger conversations? So there's a counter argument to that, which was uh, made by Pat Buchanan, which goes something like this. Coronavirus is actually going to do the opposite. It's going to make the case mm. for nationalism for us because, uh, you know, a few considerations. One, because of globalization, we've outsourced, you know, we've allowed China to develop a virtual monopoly on the a production of vaccines, for example, so that mm. when we do get a coronavirus vaccine, if the Chinese government wants to, it can say, we're going to vaccinate everyone in China first, then right. the West, you can you can get the leftovers. So that means, you know, we're waiting however long for a billion vaccines to be, you know, developed in China and they have the right to sort of prioritize themselves. And and why did we allow them to, to get that monopoly in the first place? Because it was a, a bit cheaper. Um, Another argument would be, do we want all of Mexico when they're infected with the virus coming to America? Not just because we're afraid of getting it from them. I mean, we're, we should be afraid of getting it from our neighbors first, mm-hmm. but because they're going to want American healthcare. Say what you want about American right. healthcare, but you know, we, we, we're basically the best in the world at like acute intensive care. We're really bad at like long-term diseases and whatnot, but at acute care, like you got shot or you're going into Mm -hmm. cardiac arrest or, you know, your respiratory system is shutting down. The American system is unusually good at dealing with cases like that. And do we want, you know, Mexicans flooding the border, you know, trying to get U.S. healthcare? So is that not kind of making the case for nationalism? Uh, you know, it, it might end up being a wash. It might not end up doing much at all. I'm not really sure. Yeah. 
mar- marginally yeah, it might it just definitely the case of- I was just saying marginally it might just benefit benefit Trump you know if you if we so. if we get out of it not totally scathed he'll seem like yeah. a presidential leader you know like in times of war you look <laughs> to the president it, to like yeah. for, for for you don't want change I don't know it, 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 we'll see maybe yeah if, if it's still raging at that it, if there's an election when there's an election yeah although I think the response has just been so dreadful that it, not to make it partisan but just a monumental failure on the part of the federal government mm-hmm. Um, which he's going to have to walk his way out of. I'm sure he'll try and his, I'm sure his 40% will follow him right out of it. Um, but yeah, no, with the nationalism thing, I see the argument for, for pointing out how an interconnected world is a more vulnerable mm-hmm. world. Cause if one part of the machine breaks, the whole thing breaks like the supply chains. If China is shut down all over the world are, are in trouble because almost everything has a part that's made in China. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get the obvious, like, Oh, it'd be great if everybody was sort of self-reliant on an Island. Yeah. I, I, I could see that argument being made, but if you keep playing that one out again, diseases, like they just, they don't care. No matter how isolated you are, they're going to spread. Like it doesn't take much for it to start, you know, populating in another, um, across another border. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think playing out the nationalism one is, you might be right that it, it goes that way. I guess we'll just have to see, but is is terrible and leads to like, I mean, this brings back sort of, I know we wanted to end on the good stuff, but um, the, the the moral responsibility, we talked about like reckless endangerment of patient 31, Flor- Florida suing China is just, is funny. But I actually wonder if this kind of thing, you brought it to somewhere like the ICJ and you were claiming it's not even a bad argument, a legal argument. And I am not an international lawyer. I did a film about it and I learned a little, but I'm not an international lawyer. But an argument seems to be able to be made of like a legal slash moral responsibility for a place that that knows it has a thing that is a global threat and mismanages it so badly and recklessly endangers the rest of the world, which it did, causing all kinds of death and, and mayhem. I mean, you play this indirect responsibility game long enough and it just disappears into to nothing. But if you can start tracing the line fairly, you know, um, straight, th- there were legal criminal cases that I believe were, were um, found almost unanimously guilty of people who knew they had the AIDS virus having unprotected sex and infecting others who were prosecuted and found guilty for doing so. I think even at like second degree murder Mm -hmm. kind of charges, I I could check that. Um, The analogy here on a country sort of doing that kind of thing is um, uh, if not legally sound, kind of morally interesting to consider. Mm -hmm. And are we go, when I play out that nationalism game, are we going to enter a world where we're like going to war with, because the problem with a pandemic is you really can't have outliers. You you need, you need, it's mm. either like it's global cooperation, either all in the extreme of a global cooperation. It, uh, Robin Hanson's second reference was talking about like world government and that kind of thing. Uh, or it's global cooperation, meaning we're all going to globally decide to be nationalistic you almost have to go one way or the other because if you if you go almost all the way but have an at one outlier the way pandemics work the one outlier can can cause the the corruption of the in, entire system mm. like are we going to go to war with countries that don't handle their pen, pandemics properly and allow it to uh escape as it were like who has the responsibility the guy letting the person get on the plane or the country accepting the guy on the plane mm. uh it's uh 
I want to say both and we all need to cooperate in some kumbaya world. We just know that's maybe my lefty pipe dream. I don't know. Yeah. Um, as far as like suing people for this kind of thing, I, I think that's <laughs> so like, why stop at China? Why not sue the meat market at Wuhan? And here's, yeah. there's a, there's definitely an, a huge element of moral luck there, which is, you know, if I got Corona now and spread it, or like, like, let's say I, 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 what separates the first person to get Corona virus morally from the last person to get it? Well, consequent yeah. in the pure consequentialist terms, the first person is the reason that it spread to like maybe 3 billion, right? Like just because they were in that position, whereas the last person spreads it to nobody because you happen to be the last person. The first person to get the AIDS virus is in some sense responsible for the whole thing, but they're in, in another sense, the unluckiest, the moral, morally unluckiest because they were in a position mm -hmm. to spread it to seven billion people. And I, 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 there does seem to be something unfair about holding China responsible for spreading it to the world. I mean, because, yeah. you know, all things considered, yeah. yeah, the Chinese government, they flubbed in the beginning because they tried to suppress it and spread dis disinformation from what I understand. But when they yeah. did respond, they respond, they responded, you know, with full force, which was certainly mm -hmm. yeah, a good thing. They, yeah. Crazy force. And right. probably responded much better than the American federal government has responded. So, yeah. you know. They, you know, I, I don't really feel any antipathy towards China because of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're a country that 40, 40 years ago was like a completely third world. And they still have many parts of China that are just really like rural backwaters. And I definitely think we should stop they should stop wolfing down bat burgers in Wuhan in that one meat market. <laughs> I think it was a, but a pang, pang, pangolin, yeah, which is an animal whatever. I didn't even know existed before this thing, which is very adorable. Yeah. Pangolin, by the way. Yeah. Not food. So should definitely get rid of those crazy live meat markets, which seem to be like breeding grounds for super viruses. But other than that, I, I think it's bad luck that this thing came out of China. I don't think it's yeah something you sue over. I'm going to I'm going to say something to shift this. I totally agree, actually. And I'm going to shift this in a way that I think is really where I want to end it again, of course, with my favorite thinker, David Deutsch. But to, to really drive home, there was this line that we talked about in his episode of all evil is caused due to lack of knowledge. And this obvious and that, that was the one you brought up, I think, the coronavirus when it was just sort of creeping in on us. And um, this is a situation of. I think when he talks about something like the climate crisis, of course, the word crisis there is really uh, interesting to talk about philosophically what that means and, and what he's what is the crisis when you're talking about the climate crisis. Of course, you can say like, well, the temperature is rising and talk about greenhouse gases and climate change and all the science that people hopefully know by now is happening. And that's the crisis and we're, we're driving it. Well, well, sure. But another way to actually describe the crisis is the crisis is that because we don't have a solution for it it's affecting our behavior in drastic ways. It's not letting us 
do what we want and live the kind of lives we want, we're having to sacrifice. This word sacrifice is used in religious philosophy a lot as this like great thing, but he almost flips it in this way of like, no, sacrifice is terrible. Like, why do you have to sacrifice that thing? We could set aside the psychological utility of sacrifice, but philosophical sacrifice is actually kind of awful. It's like, oh, that, that means you're in a crisis if you're being asked to sacrifice something. Uh, little things like, you know, using metal straws instead of paper, whatever, you know, let's not cry about it. But major things, if the climate crisis becomes so big that we're like uh, rationing our gasoline and how far we could travel and flying to beautiful places we, that we can't do now because of that's actually the crisis is that it made us change our behavior, which sounds a little kind of wacky, but stick with me there. So we need to solve that crisis. And once we have the solution for something like climate change, um, you can go back to flying wherever you want. If it's something as, you know, cleaning the air with with nanorobots and we can regulate the temperature as easily as we regulate the, the temperature in this apartment, then the crisis is over, meaning go back to pursuing beautiful things and fly to those places you always wanted wanted to and et cetera. The crisis that we're in with a with a pandemic is clearly not good enough knowledge of how to combat disease and not just change our behavior in order to flatten the curve. That's like flattening the curve is another mathematical way of saying like sacrifice a lot of what you want to do because we need to do this because this is the best solution we have on the shelf right now. I hope that is viewed as the crisis. Of course, yes, people are dying. That's the obvious crisis and people are getting sick and that's the crisis. But think of the crisis in a way of like, we should change our behavior because of those things. But the fact that we're being asked to sacrifice and ought to morally sacrifice in major ways is the crisis. And what hopefully this is a situation that we all go through as, as earthlings living through the year 2020 and what is clearly a global moment of this pandemic of realizing just so saliently that our knowledge of how to beat and fight disease is not good enough because we're being asked to sacrifice way too much in order to mitigate moral situations that that ought not to exist, like 1% of all the old pe- you know people in the world dying and they all happen to be old. Like That's not tenable, so we're all trying to change our behavior. That's the crisis we're in, mm. so I hope all... And, and we should be cheering on our scientists and and celebrating when, when we have a cure. This is, I've, I've pointed out before, whenever that we do solve this thing, because also there's also sort of this fun, I think, thing to notice that we all have this kind of optimism that we all just say like, oh, when is the, you know, when are they going to get the, the vaccine? The fact that we can kind of reliably ask that question because we, we know we're good at at least that part of it and that we'll get it in a year or two, whatever it is. It's kind of amazing, you know, like how, how amazing would have that been during the Black Plague for people to be like, oh, when are the scientists getting the vaccine? Like, this is kind of shitty. Like, I hate staying inside. Um, we actually, we're at that point, but we want more. And that's great. Science and knowledge collection should be even better. I don't know exactly what that looks like here because we don't have that knowledge yet. And I also just want to to point towards... Another Deutschian point here of, of while I'm on this kind of ho- hopefully energetic and positive rant is, is a play for we don't know where that knowledge will come from. And the kind of mocking that people have done in the past of pure scientific research, I actually have a list of things that mostly Republican, but, but also Democrat congressmen have pointed out on the floors of the Senate before of mocking like wasteful government spending, Mm. such as studying steroid use in hamsters, cocaine's effects on the sexual activity of Japanese quails, (laughs) methane gas, (laughs) methane, see you left, but there you go. (laughs) Methane gas from dairy cows. Um, uh, Why is that crazy? 
what the method yeah well at the time they made fun of it right because no one really completely understood the effects of climate change right? it's a perfect example of that one without complete knowledge the knowledge that we right. have of the the damage would be mocked of like you're studying cow farts <laughs> like our government is wasting money actually no that's a hugely important thing yeah. to study when it may have been seen as a fringe crazy scientist who had some theory about the effect of cow farts on the environment that's fair and how big it was before right? i knew that was and important then, i might i might have mocked it too you, and they did. This was like a clip from the 80s. Yeah. If I can find it, I can put it up. Um, and then imagine someone like mocking pangolin mating ha mm. habits or something mm -hmm. like five years mm -hmm. ago. It's totally mockable mm -hmm. in that sense, but actually could have been the thing of understanding the immune system of the pangolin. Who knows what kind, where you will find the knowledge to, that could have been the thing that turned the key and stopped this thing and saved a lot of lives. That we should just be championing point, science. Point taken. Pure point taken. Yeah, but what about the giving Japanese quails coke? Is that plausibly related <laughs> well, to anything? I didn't read the full study. It was <laughs> it was cocaine's effects on sexual activity. I think it was um, uh, 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 trying to study obviously human behavior. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the, the quails have more sex when they're on coke, and then they want know, more but, coke after you give them coke first. I don't know. I should link to the study. You could read it. But this is the thing with pure science. Some of them will be dead ends. But one of them, one of a hundred, and you just don't know which one could be the one. I, I'm sure they were studying, of course, rather the Japanese quail might have some. Listen, if there's a scientist out there who knows that one, I'm sure they'll be in touch being like, this is why I did it. And I'm betting we need to sense. give penguins Viagra and meth and see what happens. Yeah. For science. Just to, just to see for science. <laughs> Do it for science. Here's one thing that we should. I, yeah. I want to say about the coronavirus. Did you read Yasha Monk's piece about what's happened? What's happening in Italian hospitals with the triage no. system that they have to? No. The basic outline is that all of their hospitals are operating at overcapacity and not just a little bit overcapacity, like something like twice capacity, Oof. twice as many people need intensive care units as they have. So they're, they're having to put in this triage system, uh, deciding who to take and who to leave to die. Oh yeah. There you which go. Which is horrible. Which, which is the episode we did with Lisa Tessman about, uh, Katrina after Katrina mm -hmm. in the hospitals and you're running out of resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. And, so this is this is a moral philosopher's morbid fantasy, which is what Oof. rules do they use to triage people? And it turns out the rules they're using are sort of straight out of utilitarian thinking. They're they're you know if if they're trying to essentially maximize the life years saved. They're just going youngest to oldest. Yeah. So letting the oldest die. Yeah. So if you if you come in and you're 65, and you know the, you have two, you have one intensive care units. You have one person who's 30. Let's say they have a 50 percent chance of recovery if you give them the intensive care unit, and someone who's 65, they have a 30 percent chance of recovery. Yeah. They let the old person die in the hallway and give 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 it to the to the 35 to the 30 year old and yeah you know what 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 this made me think is that you know regardless of what very esoteric arguments you and I might have about deontology and utilitarianism when it comes down to it utilitarian thinking is has very much won it's won in some fundamental way
Well, it wins in a crisis. I mean, I agree with you. It, it wins, wins in a crisis. And maybe in a fundament. It wins in a crisis. And, and a, you know, I hate it, but I agree with you that it wins. Yeah. I hate when you're forced to use it. And I agree with you. Yeah. You're forced to use it there. I, and you're, I also, no right that, you're also right yeah. that the, the, the goal should be to, to engineer ourselves out of such dilemmas so that we don't. Yeah. Italy failed. The, the fact that it has to use this triage system is evidence yes. that it failed at something. Yes. And so... To wrap this one up with that, because that's the 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 famous uh, the trolley the, the trolley problem is terrible because yes, when you're forced to just do the math, all things being equal, do the math, but someone's gonna die, and if you could avoid being on that track somehow, this is that was my whole just rant and pitch there for for science cheering on science i also wanted to add with the cheering on science i hope one day when we do better with this and it will be soon, we'll celebrate it because. While this was going on, I, I I jumped into some conversations to remind people there was literally a video of doctors in Congo celebrating on the streets, banging jerry cans that the last Ebola patient had left mm. the entire country. Mm. And it, Ebola, we basically solved it. I don't want to overplay it, but we have a semi-cure that is no longer a death sentence, which is crazy. Within a few years, if you remember the Ebola scare and craze we we solved that and no one was walking around the streets high-fiving solving ebola and i think we need more of that maybe to wrap back in sort of the shame and and celebration and what we could do about engineering and hijacking people's status seeking we should be making heroes out of the people who fight these things and solve these things because because they're they're genuine heroes um and with you with your 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 sentence there of like we should avoid being on the tracks of the trolley we should avoid these situations where we're forced to use utilitarianism and consequentialism math i guess utilitarianism in that case um right now to end this one it seems that the train is coming for us we already made a lot of mistakes by avoiding it and and we could blame federal government or whatever but we're on the tracks now and so if anybody has listened to this and needs just any general advice, of course, it's it's the best we can do, given all of that and the knowledge we have on the shelf is wash your hands, social distancing, read a good book, listen to podcasts and, um, you know, do <laughs> I don't know. That, that's my advice. Do the best. Do the best you can and try to internalize the kind of invisible responsibility that we've talked about here for people of our age group and likely the ones who will be listening to us of the age group, um, I know the biggest fear is not getting sick. I'm not actually that worried about dying from the disease or getting sick. I'm not in a, it, but what I, but I, what we should be. So buying hand sanitizer and all that and that craze, I feel like is a little kind of skewed almost. It's like, don't worry about getting it so much. Worry about giving it. Mm. Worry about. That's the other thing I wanted to mention is that I, I yeah. think it's interesting, and it would be interesting to be somewhere like South Korea, you know, to, mm -hmm. to know which countries frame the public health response more in terms of how to not get it, and which countries frame yes, it in terms of how to it. not give it. And in, in America, of yeah. course, is it's all about how to not get it. There's almost no. Yeah no no conversation about how to not give it i mean there's yeah the, the, like the proportion of information that's about how to not get it to how to not give it is super high right the yeah, ratio that that's a it's a huge, huge and i just point. wonder and I th if and I that's think universal or, or if that's very different in other countries 
Yeah, I think it reveals something a little ugly about the the individualism of America. I mean, that that's a topic we didn't really talk much specifically about, but the differences of cultural memes in places like Korea or China that are more collectivist versus individual mm -hmm. and which ones are faring better, mm -hmm. quote unquote, in this situation. Mm -hmm. And our individualism and our our rampant libertarianism in America may be our worst enemy in some regards there. But I, th I think it does reveal something a little ugly about ourselves. And yeah, I, I think we, we need it's fine. The individualism is fine, works great in market systems, uh, but we should we should be. Yes, I think there needs to be a shift, especially if you're young think about who you're giving it to mm -hmm. and the indirect kind of, it might not be your grandmother, but it might be the person you hung out with their grandmother when they go hang out with them. So yeah, hand sanitizer is good and all that, whatever. But like, yeah, think about not, not giving it um, for as long as we can. And there you go. finally, what are the best bingeable shows? We should give people some recommendations. Oh, I I've been, um, so, you know, I'm a huge Roseanne fan. <laughs> it's still my favorite show of all time. All right. You don't know. I've, that I've never surprised. seen it. I think. Oh, it's it's nine seasons yeah. long. It's still on Amazon Prime for free. Uh, my girlfriend has not seen all of it, <laughs> so I have her half almost. She's at the season or series. Sorry, season finale of season four. So she's got four more seasons to go. Although the last ones aren't very good. Um, there's that one. You know, I'm not a huge TV watcher. I did see Westworld is coming out again. Yeah, when Westworld is that coming out? Season one is. I don't know. I saw I saw the ads on buses. I'm ready recently, for that. But um, yeah, Westworld season one is like the the best TV I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Season one just is season two is good too. Flawless. I thought. Yeah, season two was good. I'll also, I'll also, I'll, I want to make a pitch with the bingeable thing. Uh -huh. There's two services that I've looked at while we're spending a lot more home time that are all science documentaries and more um, philosophy stuff that probably a lot of our audience is into. One's called Magellan TV that you should check mm -hmm. out. And the other one's Curiosity Stream, which is a little more popular. Mm -hmm. They're both cool. They're subscription-based, but it's um, they're great. So we're, we I signed up for a free trial and watching science-y documentaries and that kind of stuff. Watch my film. Hey, Islam of the Future of Tolerance, mm -hmm. it's on there. You can, that's, it's on Amazon Prime. Nice. Um, I don't know. What else you got? Um, I watched Contagion. Contagion, yeah, everyone's made, watching that. I hear it's good. I, I might watch it's it. A, it's a great film. It's um, in the theater years ago. Yeah. I think the stand, the stand, Stephen, sorry, Stephen King's The Stand is my favorite, like, post-apocalyptic plague movie. Okay. So if you want to really freak yourself out, uh, The Stand is pretty great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things I find very bingeable are House, the mm -hmm. old Hugh Laurie, um, Death Note, one of the best animes and super bingeable. Uh, mm. Westworld, the OA I found very bingeable. Um, Louie. Yeah, comedy is good if you need a laugh. Uh, um, oh, also, I'll say see. I've been I don't know if you've been getting into this at all. I'm like totally on board with the board game re renaissance that's happening. Is it? So is it's it? got a few really good board games. Yeah, yeah I'm not on that train. But not is there a renaissance? Oh, yeah, a little wow. bit. There's like really beautiful games getting made. So I've been, I just played Takedo for the first time last Takedo. night, which was it's uh it's semi-competitive Japanese vacationing. It's a really fun board game. You can you come over. And we'll we'll play it. Going a little. It actually gets your I'm mind. Social off distancing, man. No, we're good. I'm not we're coming anywhere near you. And <laughs> we could we could actually probably play it virtually. Uh, Hive is a game that's really fun. Mm. This this like sort of chess checkerboard game that we've been playing a lot of. Um, yeah, get into board games. They're great. Go go uh, go get a board game. Nice. 
All right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Be safe, everyone. So, yeah. And in, in social distancing spirit, we did this one via Skype. <laughs> so do a lot more of that video conferencing. It's like the only stock that's up on the stock. Market yeah, Zoom is, like Zoom is Zoom is killing it right now. <laughs> They're killing it now. The conspiracy was probably yeah. them. So, yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, that's it. So that was our little uh, coronavirus special. Be safe, everyone. All right. Yeah. Be well. All right. Take it easy. Peace. See you, man. See ya.